Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Brian Steed. He's the new executive director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. Brian Steed previously served as executive director of the Utah Department of Natural Resources, also as Federal Bureau of Land Management's National Deputy Director for Policy and Programs, exercising the authority of the director from 2017 to 2019. He was chief of staff to Utah Congressman Chris Stewart from 2013-2017, and he's served as deputy county attorney for Iron County and taught political science and economics at uh, USU. Um, he holds a Ph.D. in public policy with an emphasis in environmental policy from Indiana University, Bloomington, and a Juris Doctor from uh, S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, with a certificate in natural resources and environmental uh, law. Um, so we welcome in Brian Steed. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity, and, and I feel like I'm among friends. I've listened to you so many times, the voice just sounds familiar. Well, good. That's, I'm, I'm glad you feel feel comfortable. Glad you're listening to NPR and UPR. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's my pleasure. You were telling me before we went on the air that you were one of those uh, captive backseat kids. Uh, I, I blame my mother. Yeah. Uh, at, when we were in, in many, many, many carpools, uh, spent, I, I was the youngest of four kids, uh, driving my siblings around, uh, NPR was a constant companion, so I, I blame her, uh, yeah. but it's, it's a habit I have yet to break. <laughs> well, we encourage that habit, so thank you. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Um, so you grew up in Logan? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, attended USU, I guess, so you're, you're an alum, then went on to... Um, uh, Indiana University, right? Uh, first, I went to uh, the University of Utah College of University Law. University of Utah College of Law. Yep. You got the law degree. I did. Right? And and then, but uh, that wasn't enough. Well, uh, I was I was practicing law. Uh, so my background, I, I grew up here in Logan, always interested in natural resources stuff. Uh, ended up um, spending two years in Guatemala uh, and realized that there are many, many, many decisions being made at at the government level that impact people's day-to-day lives. And as a result of that, I ended up not studying natural resources, but studying political science, just based on those policy decisions being made, and ended up getting both an undergraduate and a graduate degree in, in uh, political science, but always focused on natural resources. I mean, my master's thesis was on Costa Rican environmental law. And I, and I realized at the end of that, I knew more about Costa Rican environmental stuff than I knew about U.S. environmental stuff, which was why I decided to go to law school. Uh, and so I went to the University of Utah and, and really focused on natural resources and environmental law. And it was a real pleasure. Well, I can't say it's a real pleasure. Law school is never a real pleasure. Right, right. <laughs> you made it through. Interesting, I would imagine. Uh, let me do, just, by, by the way, uh, Costa Rican natural resources. I imagine there's some commonalities of the issues addressed there versus the U.S.? Absolutely. And maybe some differences? I mean, Costa Rica has been a leader in Central America for a long time, and really in the developing world, or in trying to be pretty proactive when it comes to protecting the environment. They've set aside large swaths of land in protected areas, as well as been really focused on aspirational environmental laws. The law that I was looking at was a 1998 law that protect, designed to protect all biodiversity. And as I said, it's probably more aspirational, but very interesting nonetheless. And Costa Rica is a great country. Hmm. Uh, you spent some time um, in the county attorney's office. I did. Or, what was that like? So what kinds af- of things were you doing there? After I got done with uh, uh, law school, uh, Decided I, I really needed to get some practice under my belt, uh, was looking around for options, uh, and really stumbled across Iron County, Utah. Spent two years in the as a deputy county attorney, 
uh, in Iron County doing mostly prosecution, but also all of their civil stuff. Based on my interest in natural resources, I ended up doing a lot of work on Utah prairie dogs uh, oh, because it's right. uh, a threatened species that is listed under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, and there's a bunch of rules that govern that. And so helping the county to be in compliance there. So it was a lot of what I did in addition to, to my day job, which was by and large prosecuting. And uh, it was a good legal training. I spent a lot of time in the court. Uh, I can tell you, you asked why uh, uh, the law degree wasn't enough. Uh, I went to a legal conference once and I looked around in a room full of lawyers and I realized these aren't my people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens, right? Yeah, it happens. Um, so you went to, got your PhD. Tell me a little bit about that. So I uh, decided to go to Indiana University. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, I wanted to work with a, a researcher at Indiana. Her name was Eleanor Ostrom, uh, and she's a lovely person. She was studying uh, what they call common pool resources. These are resources that are shared by and large, uh, that I can't exclude your access to them, but your use impacts my use, uh, and how we deal with those resources over longer time spans. Uh, she was uh, kind enough to take me on as a student, and I spent three years in Indiana uh, working uh, with her and then spent an additional two years working on a dissertation where I followed up so- on some of her early work. During that time, uh, it was kind of cool because she ended up winning the Nobel Prize in economics. She was a political scientist by by training, uh, but had done a lot of cross-cutting work between uh, economics and political science and uh, ended up winning the Nobel Prize in 2009. Uh, that was right before I graduated, so I looked really smart when I graduated, <laughs> having been one of her students. Yeah, the, the halo effect, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so common pool resources, uh, that fits exactly with natural resources, right? That's correct. I mean, if you look at uh, the airspace or you look at water or oftentimes uh, forests or other areas, they are common pool resources, for which exclusion of one person is often very difficult, but for which one person's use definitely impacts another person's use. Uh, and it's one of the real challenges of our time, and, and I would argue of any time, to decide how we're not going to use those those resources to extinction. And just one example, there was, there's was there been a very common uh, refrain, uh, certainly among economics, but also on many natural resources experts where they talk about the tragedy of the commons, to where your incentives are such that you will use that to its extinction as I will use it to its extinction. And so how do you stop people from doing that? And one of the cool things about Eleanor Ostrom's work is she found that wasn't necessarily fait accompli, that indeed you're able to create institutions that can help create different incentives so that your incentives are to conserve and my incentives are to conserve. And that's kind of the work that I think we're all engaged in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, um, I'm just thinking that that, Push and pull, right? Tragedy of the commons versus institutions that you set up to prevent that uh, made me think of water rights and the current disputes among the, the Colorado River states. Absolutely. Right? And there, it, there's, there's upper river states are accusing lower states, lower states are accusing upper states of not, not conserving enough, right? Meanwhile, the, the resource is diminishing. It's a classic common pool resource dilemma to where we have this this many, many users who depend on it. And and those, they came up with a solution back in 1922, the Colorado River Compact, to really delineate the rights of what the upper basin had and what the lower basin had. But right now, in a time of scarcity, there's really an active conversation about whether those rules are working. 
And especially when you have low flows on the river, uh, there are really more demands on that river than there is supply of water on that river. And we're going to have to figure out how we get through this time of scarcity. Um, tell me, about, before we went out there, you t- t- telling me about your dissertation, uh, which had to do with water. Yeah. So uh, I was uh, voluntold by uh, <laughs> Eleanor Ostrom that I should really work on uh, Los Angeles water. And I'll be very honest, uh, when I went back to graduate school, I did not dream on moving from, from Utah to Indiana to work on California water. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, it was quite uh, fortuitous. Uh, she had done previous research back in the, ni- uh, the early 1960s. She had sent a student back in the 1980s uh, to look at the same problem, and then she wanted me to go back to kind of do a third time series of uh, check-in on where things were. What no one understands about the L.A. Basin, about 60% of the water used in the Los Angeles Basin is groundwater. And it's a classic common pool resource problem to where we've had many, many, many people poking holes in the ground, and those people pulling water out have impacted other people who want to pull water out. And it's really an interesting case study where they have created a certain set of unique rules and conditions uh, and uh, special water districts and other things to prevent uh, the extinction of those groundwater basins. Uh, And so over, over really 100 years or so, where you've had a booming population, they've actually been able to make it work. Now, has it been perfect? No. A lot of the way they've made it work is to import water from other sources, from the Owens Valley, from uh, Northern California through the Colorado, or for the California project, as well as through, from the Colorado River. And now those sources are becoming a little less reliable uh, for a variety of reasons. And so trying to figure out how to make that work with those diminishing, uh, those diminishing amounts of inflows uh, but it's been an, it was an interesting study to decide how people evaluate the different challenges they face, as well as how those challenges change over time. There was a time in, in the Los Angeles Basin, there's this awesome quote from an historian, H.H. Uh, H. Bancroft, who, who says essentially that by uh, the late 1800s, the population, had, or by, by I, think, I think it's by the mid-1800s, the population had swelled to about 300 people in Los Angeles, and the biggest limiting problem was the availability of water. Mm. You consider that compared to the 10 million people that now live there, it's pretty remarkable that people have been able to overcome those different challenges. Um, You know, water, along with other natural resources, kind of naturally leads to, I was going to say disputes. Uh, It doesn't have to be dispute. Often it is disputes. But conflict, certainly, right? Absolutely. Uh, there are differing ideas of how, how, this, how, how we should proceed, right? Uh, one thing I've noticed in work in natural resources is that people care passionately about these issues. And oftentimes they define their lifeblood. Water in the West, for many people, is, is their source of livelihood. And without that water, there is no livelihood. And, and now that we're transitioning oftentimes along the Wasatch Front, as a, for instance, and here in Cache Valley, from a more agriculture base to a more uh, municipal and industrial base, access to water is still a major limiting factor. And as you mentioned, Tom, there, there certainly are a number of different ideas on how we would manage that resource, uh, and it is a conflict-rich environment. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, I'm an optimist. I've seen examples where there has been tremendous conflict in the past, and we have gotten through those hard times, and it's my hope that we're able to get through these hard times. Hmm. I'm still um, 
you know, I hate to st- step on your optimism here, you know, and I share it in part, but I, I'm, I still remember as a kid, uh, bitterness among a lot of people in the Ona Basin in Vernal about the Central Utah Project. Uh, absolutely. Where that would have been and was lauded by people along the Wasatch Front as a brilliant solution, right? So, th- so th- that's, you know, different, differing perspectives. And, and those conflicts persist to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we went out and had the conversation in the basin, uh, I can tell you straight that there would be a lot of people that share that sentiment, that they perceive the, the Central Utah Project as, as an existential threat to, to what they want to do. But we as society uh, have to come up with solutions for these very pressing problems. And I think over time, uh, again, I remain optimistic that we're able to find some solutions. Now, does that mean it's going to be easy? Absolutely not. Does it mean that it'll be conflict-free? No. Uh, but I still remain optimistic that we are, are able to find uh, solutions even to these very difficult problems. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, um, and I'll probably return to this maybe later in the hour as well, but um, so you're optimistic. Uh, you you think we do you can find you know there are instances you could point to where we have found solutions right um it is a conflict rich environment how do we navigate that i mean it, it i've done many many programs on uh, you know episodes of this program where where i'm moderating conflict right public lands bears ears for a very recent example uh from your from your view and your experience uh how do we successfully navigate these conflicts I think it's a challenge, uh, and I and I totally understand what you're saying to where you've sat as moderator between differing opinions and differing sides. That being said, I think part of one of the challenges, but also one of the promises of a democratic republic like we have, is the ability to resolve these issues without con- with without resorting to violence. And really, uh, it takes time. Nothing happens within a very short time frame. I think it requires bringing those different stakeholders to the table to discuss different options and to discuss um, different options that can happen. Uh, there may be winners and losers, but you try to mitigate those losses. And one example I'd, I'd love to point to is right now, many of the water rights that we hold in this state are, are controlled currently by agriculture. That's the folks that have developed these water uh, sources and as a result have acquired water rights. Uh, now we have competing uses for many of those things, whether that be for in-stream flows, uh, for an environmental purpose, or uh, for diversion to to a municipal and an industrial. Uh, either way, that requires trying to find win-win solutions. One of the things we did last year in the legislative session and in my job as a, a director of the Department of Natural Resources is worked very closely uh, on a bill to allow for in-stream flows. Historically, water rights uh, are... First in time, first in right. It's something very Western, uh, you know, prior appropriation and then uh, first in time. So that means first in time, first in right, but then also that you have to use it or lose it. There is a, a third way, and that third way is that you're able to say, well, I can dedicate that to an in-stream flow for a specified purpose. And that specified purpose then allows me not to lose that water right. And so mm-hmm. you're able to, as, as a farmer, maybe take uh, your irrigation for two cuts of of uh, crops rather than four, and then use that water uh, in a different capacity. And hopefully uh, what we're trying to do now is to divert that to, to those other purposes, uh, whether that be to refill the Great Salt Lake or put more water in the Colorado River, both of which are really important for the state right now. 
I was uh, watching a video, I think narrated by, by you and Chris Lukey. Um, I think this was what I was watching. And th- there, was a, there was a picture, a video of uh, the water, I think it's probably Bear River, flowing into the Great Salt Lake, right? And the idea was, you know, some uh, feel like we need to use our water rights. There shouldn't even be water flowing into the, you know, use it up. Shouldn't be flowing into the lake, right? Others, of course, are saying, boy, we need more flowing into the lake, right? Absolutely. That's what you're talking about. That's exactly right. And, and the Bear River is a great example. Uh, when, when the Bear River water rights were uh, initially adjudicated, there was a, a broad perception that any water that reached the Great Salt Lake was lost. So therefore, we probably should use it up before it gets to the Great Salt Lake. What we've learned, uh, not just in the recent past, but but even before that, is that water that reaches the Great Salt Lake provides huge services to so many things that we rely on for quality of life here in Utah, whether that be for nature and just the millions of migratory waterfowl uh, that come through that area, or for snowpack, or for any number of other things, including mitigation of dust. All those things matter, and so trying to figure out how we then change that mindset to use it up before it gets there to where maybe we can do both things, utilize some of that water for the crops on on the early season and divert the rest of it into the lake for late season and figure out a mechanism whereby that's not costing uh, those those farmers, uh, I think is a really important thing. Hmm. We're overdue for a break, but you mentioned snow. How how does the the water level and the Great Salt Lake affect snow? It's directly connected, uh, both for lake effect snow, as well as when you get more dust events coming off the lake, you have what they call the albedo effect, where you get dust on on the snowpack. It creates different coloration of the snow, and as a result, you have uh, faster snow melt, so you actually lose water from both sides. Um, Both those things matter for Utah. Uh, not only because we have uh, developed this reputation for the greatest snow on earth, but also because that is your source of drinking water or source of irrigation water for crops or water for the Great Salt Lake, all of which uh, we don't have enough of right now. Hmm. And then this competition we're talking about is always going to be present, right? There's uh, lithium deposits been discovered, right? That's correct. Is that the receding shoreline? Is that where that is? So so there's been an active mineral um, extraction industry on the lake for for many years now, uh, both on uh, the south arm of the lake. You've got uh, magnesium, where I think it's the only U.S.-produced magnesium where they're pulling magnesium out of the out of those salt concentrates, uh, as well as uh, other minerals like salt. And then on on the side closest to us, we actually have another company, Compass Minerals, that's doing uh, sulfate of potash, which is a a key ingredient in uh, in fertilizer. Uh, they have now found that one of the things that they thought was just a waste product was lithium. And uh, lithium turns out to be really important for the green energy transition. And so trying to figure out how to do that. Now, again, though, in terms of balancing, we're going to have to figure out a way to balance that lithium extraction with the water needs of the lake. If we can't, we can't do that mineral extraction at the expense of the lake. Mm-hmm. What, is, what are the water needs then for that industry? Is that uh, So right now what they've been doing is, is generally uh, either when the lake level's high, they've been moving that water into evaporation ponds. As the water level has receded, they've been pumping up into those evaporation ponds. Um, we're actually engaged right now in an active discussion on how much water there is being used there. 
And uh, I think we'll have better reports back in, in about the middle of October. And I'm happy to come back and talk about that. But I think that there are some water needs. And as a result, I think that we have to evaluate what those water needs are costing the lake itself. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do go to break uh, now. We're talking with uh, Brian Steed. Uh, he is the new executive director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're talking with Brian Steed. He's the executive director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. So we're talking about natural resources, right? Land, water, and air and everything related. We're going to get into what uh, the institute calls some cross-cutting issues. And uh, those are especially important, not land, water, air in isolation, but, but how those interact and how we interact with them. Before we get into that, uh, just give me some highlights from your time at the BLM. You started doing policy, and then you ended up essentially heading the BLM for a couple of years, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, uh, I was brought on to be the director of policy and programs. Um, there was never a director nominated uh, during my time there, and as a result, they asked me to do double duty. Um, it was, to be quite fair, the most stressful job I ever hoped to have. Uh, and dealing with a land management agency that has 9,000 employees, manages 245 million acres of surface estate, over 700 million acres of subsurface estate, and uh, so many just really controversial issues, whether that be wild horses or uh, land use generally. It's been it was it was uh, quite a great educational experience, uh, one that I. Uh, I'm glad that I had, but also one that I was very happy to leave. Yeah. I imagine that would be pretty stressful, um, especially during the current political environment. Um, I just want, you know, I want to touch on, it could be a touchy subject, you know, handle this however you will. Um, but a lot of these issues, there are natural conflicts, and sometimes those conflicts get politicized. It's it's an easy way to score votes. Um I get so so that makes an additional layer of difficulty in navigating these issues, right? That's accurate, and and I I wish it weren't so. I think in our hearts, I mean, people's concern about the environment is generally not a political issue. If if we were to poll people, people care about clean water, people care about clean air, they care about access to clean water. But for whatever reason, we in society have have really made this politicized, and that's probably made the conversation more difficult to have because I think all of us are interested in finding those real world solutions and solutions that work for everyone. But we end up going to our camps and kind of sniping at one another from those positions. And hopefully um, we're able to then meet somewhere in the middle on those difficult issues. I'll I'll give you one example. uh, And I mentioned wild horses. Wild horses is an, an issue that's been going on in our country really since the early 1970s where we had, uh, and they're called wild horses because Congress has deemed them wild. Uh, really, they're, they're a feral animal. It's a domesticated horse that then has, has been released onto the landscape. There are some instances where you can go back to the old Spanish breeds, uh, but by and large, these are horses that people have turned over uh, onto the public state for just a lot of years. Uh, they're pretty cool animals. They're great to watch, but they also have natural conflicts, whether that's uh, with 
those who have paid to graze on those lands or more pressing and concerning to me are, are with native wildlife to where when you watch a, a band of, of wild horses, they will often, you know, try to try to defend water holes uh, at the expense of other wildlife. And so trying to find a solution for that, uh, it's something that people care really, really passionately about. And there has been for a long time, just both sides of that equation where people are angry but not really coming up with solutions. And so trying to find solutions, it was fun to work with a group that consisted members of the Humane Society, as well as uh, other uh, public lands advocates in order to try to find solutions for how you manage humanely the wild horse problem. Um, How do we manage, we can talk about this generally, I'm sure you've butted up against this in several of your roles. How do you manage manage, uh, the science of climate change uh, versus, um, you know, skepticism. So if you talk to scientists, they'll tell you, you know, human-caused climate change is, is real and is causing problems, and increasingly so. Um, you talk to some Republicans, and they'll, they'll tell you, uh, you know, some skepticism about that, and then they will emphasize energy independence, for example, right? Uh, that's just one example. How do you manage a conflict like that? I think it's one of the challenges of our day. I mean... Is the climate changing? Yes. I think that everyone has to to see that right now. Uh, and when we talk about trends versus uh, individual occurrences, it doesn't appear that we're just in a weather cycle. It appears that we're in a long-term trend to where we have less uh, less precipitation falling, falling. We have higher uh, temperatures. That combined with more people living in the West, I, I think, creates obvious problems. So uh, in terms of addressing that, uh, it, it's, it's a hard one because sometimes when you say those, those buzzwords, climate change, people will put up a guard. It's interesting, though, that if you talk about our uh, diminished lack of water as well as long-term forecasts of water, uh, people seem to take up and, or sit up and take notice and, and identify even aside of that broader debate of climate change they're actually willing to discuss what we're going to do about our water situation mm. and trying to find those issues to where we can actually unite on, I think are very key. I wish I had a better answer on the broader conversation on climate change. I'm still working on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we can all agree we're in a drought, right? That's, that's, that's a, you know, that's some common ground, right? Correct. Yeah. And then finding solutions there. Uh, so, um, Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water and Air at USU, uh, Tell me what this is, what the purpose is. Well, it's, it's an exciting uh, new endeavor that we have going on here at the university. Um, it's, it's been a long time coming. Uh, back in, well, really back since our founding in 1888, uh, the university has had a really strong focus on issues involving natural resources. That's in part due to our uh, land grant mission, but it's also in part due to kind of our background as an ag college and what you do in an arid landscape if if you're going to to try to plant crops. All of those things have culminated in in a really remarkable body of work over a long time frame to where we have experts in land, water, and air. In 2018, uh, President Cockett decided, you know, we really ought to be emphasizing more to the policy space uh, how our research is, is affecting uh, or how our research is affecting policy or how it should be affecting policy. And so we've started the research landscapes conversation. And so we had kind of 
formalized meetings to where we'd bring together policymakers and bring researchers, individual researchers that are doing policy impactful work in the natural resources space to come talk to them and educate them on some of these pressing issues. In 2019, the president decided uh, to formalize Land, Water, and Air as some of her uh, presidential priorities. Uh, and that's kind of started this chain of events to where now, uh, in 2020, uh, really there was started, started to be talk of an institute. In 2021, the institute was formally created. Uh, we had a vote of, uh, or a resolution from the legislature, uh, HCR 20, in the 2021 legislative session which then said, yeah, go do this, Utah State, uh, and supported it. Uh, in the middle of 2021, we had an external advisory board formed. I was, at the time, the director of natural resources and was acting as co-chair of the external advisory committee. And then uh, it really uh, came to fruition where we presented our first report to uh, the governor and the legislature in December of 2021. At that time, uh, we were also able to name uh, the Institute, the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air, as the Janet Quinney Lawson Foundation was able to give a generous gift uh, to start an endowment for this. Uh, and then I came on as the director in May of, of 2022. I can tell you why it's interesting and why it's exciting. We have so many issues right now in the natural resources space for which Utah State has expertise. We have 140, maybe 150 researchers that deal with this. And, and that research oftentimes is communicated to other researchers and is not known by those that are in the policymaking space. I'll give you one example. As we all know, we've been in drought. Uh, one of the things that the policymakers have decided is that we really need to look at how we use sod as landscaping. Uh, there is great research being done here at Utah State about how it's not just sod that's the problem, but it's how we water sod as well as maybe the seed blends that we're using for sod. And Kelly Cope, for instance, a researcher here uh, at Utah State has done great research. I just wasn't aware of that when we're trying to make these policy decisions. And so trying to unite the research that we're doing here and trying to, to articulate that in a way that policymakers understand it and are able to implement some of that great research that we've done here is part of it. On the other side, we often have uh, policymakers that have real needs for data and information and insight that oftentimes are not communicated very well to the brain power of a research university like Utah State. And so the other hope of the Institute is to unite and, and go talk to those, those policymakers, decide what the policy needs are, and then see if we can get better data for those those things. And just as a for instance on that, we've been working very closely with Speaker Brad Wilson with regard to uh, Great Salt Lake. Hmm. There are large data holes in what we know about the Great Salt Lake and uh, what should be done about the Great Salt Lake and putting our researchers to work on how we're going to get more water to the lake is, is one of our key things. We've actually uh, teamed up with the University of Utah and a series of researchers there to do just that. And so really bringing back those policy needs to researchers and incentivizing our researchers to, to go out and find answers and to find solutions is going to be key to, to solving some of these really difficult questions. Well, can you give a, for instance, of a, a, a knowledge hole that uh, we're trying to trying to fill? Sure. Uh, so one of the major questions, as we talked about before, was we, we're in the middle of, of drought. Uh, and uh, we have needs, we have more needs for water, both for flows as well as for, for, for use in a, in a municipal setting or for whether that's the Great Salt Lake, we have more needs than we have water available. 
as a result, we're using water and say the Great Salt Lake keeps declining in size. That has huge policy implications for all of us. And perhaps we'll get into that as we talk about cross-cutting issues, but whether that's air quality or snowpack, as we mentioned before, those are big issues. So how are we going to get more water? How are we going to get more water to the lake? And, and we have this awesome research that's being done right now by one of our extension um, folks, Matt Yost. Uh, Matt Yost has been working on different irrigation approaches uh, and found that just changing your irrigation approaches uh, in, in whether you're doing flood irrigation or, or, or on a pivot, a sprinkler system, you can actually uh, save 30% of, of water. 30%, that's a sizable amount of water. If we were able to put that in the Great Salt Lake, that would be a big, big impact on the Great Salt Lake. It would be an important thing. And explaining how we do that to policymakers is one of those things that, that we're doing right now. Uh, so this may be, be a good time to transition to agriculture, right? We, we talked a bit about the uh, the Great Salt Lake, right? Um, but the, the next cross-cutting issue, and there's six of these, I believe, you can find this, uh, usu.edu slash ILWA, Institute for Land, Water, and Air, or I just Googled Institute for Land, Water, and Air, USU, and uh, brought me up uh, to this. And you scroll down to the to the bottom of, of the page, and you get these cross-cutting issues. Um so agriculture, so, so that is very promising because this is a big conflict point, right? Agriculture is one of the biggest users of, of water. And so some say we just need to reduce agriculture. Uh, you know, it's, it's we get our agriculture from, from other states, other sources, right? Although it is culturally very, very important well, to a lot of us, right? And I would say beyond culturally, uh, there are areas in, in our state for which that probably is the highest and best use that you can put to the landscape. And, and it's been something that where people have been able to feed their families and otherwise uh, hard places to live that, uh, that I don't think we want to lose. In addition to that, and I'm going to harken back to my time at Department of Natural Resources at the state level, there's real benefits to having agriculture. Uh, agriculture provides oftentimes uh, food for, for wildlife, for instance, in, in ways that we often don't realize, as well as just the amenity values of having open space in areas that are increasingly urbanized. There, there are some real benefits to that uh, from a societal standpoint. So I don't think any of us really want to throw agriculture out whole scale. At the same time, if we have this conflict over water, there is a real temptation to say, well, I know what to do. Let's just buy and dry, right? That's one thing you can do, buy the water rights and just dry out that landscape. Or uh, others just advocate for just doing away with ag altogether, which uh, I don't think from a political standpoint is going to fly very well here in the state. But you certainly hear people advocate for it. Finding ways that agriculture can use less water and still be active in production, I think is going to be key to this. And so uh, finding ways to optimize water use. The state's made a pretty sizable investment last year. I think they will continue to make a sizable investment. Uh, so last year, the state invested about $75 million in agricultural water optimization. And it's to do those types of conversions that I was talking about, right? Whether So if you have a, a, a pivot system, the pivot systems, uh, you might find that if you drop the level of where the sprinkler actually sprays water on the crop, that actually has less transevaporative loss. And if that has less transevaporative loss, then you're able to save water and produce the same amount of crop. And so those types of uh, really minor transitions, they, they can be costly, but those types of minor transitions still have a big impact on the water available 
and then figuring out how to get that water that's saved back into another um, use, say the Great Salt Lake or flows in the Colorado, I think is going to be key. Uh, another cross cut I could see with agriculture would be, you know, habitat. Absolutely. Or for a species who, who might be threatened or, yep. or endangered. Maybe tell me a little bit about that. So uh, that's absolutely accurate, that there are, are species for which uh, have, be, as we've transitioned to a more agricultural base, they have come to rely on that agriculture as a source of, of food uh, or as a source of, of groceries. Um, think about any raptor species, for instance, as you're flying over the Intermountain West, you're going to find pockets where we have cleared a fair amount of, of land, and that landscape then uh, becomes part of uh, that, that landscape becomes part of your, your source of groceries. Mm-hmm. So you've got mice or voles or whatever else. Those raptors then rely on that, that cleared landscape. Uh, when I was in Iron County, uh, I can tell you prairie dogs absolutely love to move into alfalfa fields. And uh, I don't blame them uh, because uh, green groceries for nine months out of the year and, and you're able to see where your badgers and hawks are, uh, that seems like it makes a lot of sense from a paradox point of view. So that being said, uh, agriculture can provide a tremendous value for saving some of these species of concerns. And, and I'll, I'll point to sage grouse as being one example to where sage grouse is one of those species that we've really seen declining populations throughout the West. All of us are concerned about it and trying to figure out how we can use those those agricultural fields, whether they be ranchers or farmers, to pr- produce the types of environments that sage-grouse need, whether that be through wet meadows uh, and and what you need for, for really a viable broodstock uh, or uh, other habitat needs, working together with agricultural producers, I think is going to be key. Well, let's take another break. Um, when we come back, I want to uh, get into some of these other cross-cutting issues. Uh, we'll start with wildfires, the next one up. We're talking with Brian Steed, who's executive director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. More follows this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with uh, Brian Steed. He's the uh, director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. Uh, so Brian Steed, we're talking about some of these cross-cutting uh, issues. Uh, we talked about the Great Salt Lake and agriculture, talked a little bit about threatened and endangered species. Wildfire has been identified as a cross-cutting uh, issue. Uh, tell me about some of the latest research and what, how that might affect policy, how that might affect how we uh, deal with wildfires. So wildfire has been a very pressing issue in the western United States, especially over the last few years, as we've seen such large swaths of lands burn. And it's been a really interesting transition from even the time that I was at Bureau of Land Management on the discussion of what forest management means and how we manage a forest so that we don't uh, catastrophically burn that forest. Uh, two facts first. One, wildfire is really important to the ecosystem of the West. It, it has been forever. Uh, and so we've had uh, a landscape that's really developed uh, to, to be really reliant on wildfire. And for the last 100 years or so, we've decided wildfire is bad. So we've stopped a lot of those, those wildfires. And we have right now a growth in fuel. So that's one. Two, uh, I think we've learned that active management becomes quite important in the absence of, of those natural, naturally occurring, or even we had indigenous people burning uh, forests in the West for a long time as well. Uh, in the absence of, of those natural occurs or, or those, that frequency of burn, 
we really have to do something different to manage wildfire. And why it's a cross-cutting issue is, is well, threefold. One, if uh, the wildfire uh, burns catastrophically, oftentimes you lose ecosystems. Uh, you might actually burn so hot that you sterilize the ground and you have a really difficult landscape after that point to reseed or whatever else, which then results in erosion and other things. That then results in issue number two, uh, which is catastrophic wildfire often impacts watersheds. And those watersheds are very key to where we get our, our drinking water, but maybe even more importantly to those, those ecosystems that rely on it. And it's really interesting if you go to where uh, a wildfire has burned recently and then you have any measure of, of precipitation, uh, you often get runoff that changes just the quality of landscape. I was down in, in Beaver, Utah just two weeks ago. The Beaver River changed from from really what was a crystal clear stream. We were, we were fly fishing in it the night before, came across burn scars, and it turned just to chocolate milk hmm. uh, just overnight. And that's going to have some impact on habitat and, what, and how those species deal with it. Thirdly, and this is something that we we're concerned about as well, is that those wildfires, if if they burn catastrophically, oftentimes have tremendous impacts on our airshed, and and so if we can manage that better. So in terms of the research, we have found that active management is really important. I'd point you to the work of uh, Larissa Yoakum, uh, who's done a lot of work here uh, at Utah State regarding how uh, we can burn more frequently at times that it doesn't lead to catastrophic burns, and that and that that use of controlled burns really in the shoulder seasons and how that can have just tremendous benefits for ecosystem. In addition to that, I'd point to the work of Jim Lutz and others who look at how types of forests may impact types of snowpacks. Uh, if you have a, a, a snowpack or, or if you have a, a forest that is uh, heavily dominated by conifers, you might actually get less snow on the ground than if you have a, a forest that's aspens. Right, and having a nice mix of the two might actually increase the water available on the ground. So, trying to figure out that relationship has been key as well. Oh, we just have about uh, three minutes left, uh, so I want to skip down to the last uh, um, cross-cutting issue: uh, equity of environmental uh, impacts. So tell me a little bit about this. It's a hard issue. Yeah. Uh, we have we have needs oftentimes uh, for natural resources. How we, we utilize those natural resources uh, oftentimes is born disproportionately by different populations. I think we have to have a better understanding of how that works uh, and understand really the, the trade-offs that fa we face as that. And, and I'll give you one example. If we go out to your home uh, in, in the basin, uh, there, there has been a demonstrated need continually for oil and gas development. People seem to be doing that uh, a lot in the basin. That may have a trade-off on that area where you might have an imperiled airshed as a result of it. So trying to figure out how to mitigate that and not have those populations bear a disproportionate cost. Additionally, if you look at other areas, and I'm, I'm not an expert certainly on environmental justice issues, but I can certainly point to examples to where uh, you have refineries or other things that have been placed in areas that are now predominantly uh, of a minority population, uh, and that doesn't seem very fair to those who live there. And so I think we as a society have to have a robust conversation of, of how we address that issue and what we do about it. Oh, uh, just about a minute uh, left here. What, how can people access this, you know, these, these reports, this science, this information? So I'd ask you all to, to participate. Uh, 
we are all going to need, need to be part of the solution. What we're hoping to do with this institute is be really a convener uh, and bring people together so that we can talk about these hard issues and find solutions that are uh, uh, that, that that actually work and that actually don't cost too many uh, pro- or cause too many problems for others. Uh, I'd ask you to look us up on the web, the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air, and participate uh, in our forums and other things that we have coming forward. And thank you so much, Tom, for the opportunity to be here. Well, thank you for coming in. Welcome home. Thank you so much. Back, back to Logan. We, we're uh, glad you're here. Uh, Brian Steed is the executive director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. And uh, you can just uh, Google that, Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air, U- USU. Oh, or you can go to usu.edu slash ILWA to uh, pull up the institute. A lot of research there, interesting information. Um, and uh, next up, as we do on Tuesdays these days, we're going to turn to uh, Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Welcome to Session 4 of Utah Public Radio's Citizens Academy. Thank you for joining us. UPR is airing a series of short broadcasts in preparation for the coming elections in November in an effort to provide a way of avoiding political conflict and restoring a degree of civility in our political processes. We're proposing an idea that we believe can help do that. We call it political relationism. I am a political relationist. You may be too. I hope so. You see, a political relationist can be anyone who believes that politics and government can and should be a friendly civil process even when we disagree. Relationship skills can help accomplish this objective. And as we suggested in our last session, our political institutions have been designed to help us work through our differences when we do disagree, without contention, and hopefully with a better result than we might first have thought possible. Political relationism may be outlined in five simple ideas. We've discussed three of them in previous sessions. One, society is made up of myriad relationships of all types. In fact, relationships are the defining characteristic of society. Simply, there is no society without relationships. Two, The governing principle of society is that healthy relationships are more beneficial and less costly than unhealthy relationships for everyone involved. This is true at every level of consideration. Three, the purpose of government is to establish and protect a civil society where healthy relationships can flourish and unhealthy relationships can be improved. In this fourth session, I will discuss the fourth idea describing political relationism. That is, good government is conducted by good relationships. All good relationships have several things in common. They are, in fact, pretty simple. Good relationships are mutually beneficial and mutually pleasant, and the parties respect and trust each other. That's pretty simple. Maybe not always easy, but indeed simple. In good government, when disagreements arise, parties involved have ways of resolving these disagreements without conflict or contention. And when serious differences might otherwise cause conflict, the parties employ conflict management techniques to resolve the difficulties, remembering that what unites us is more important than what might divide us. They know how to disagree in a civil manner, protecting the relationship in the process. 
They keep the process pleasant, seeking mutual benefit, working as hard for each other's welfare as their own desires. My experience suggests that often there even is no need for compromise where each party has to give up something. Usually with a little creativity, everyone can get what they want without compromise because everyone is working for the benefit of everyone else in the process. They figure out together how to do it. A few years ago, Utah lawmakers were involved in a tense consideration of legalizing the medical use of cannabis, a highly contentious proposal at the outset. By following relationship-based processes, the parties negotiated a solution largely satisfying the wants and needs of everyone involved. I will return to this theme of mutuality in later sessions, where I will discuss different tools that might be employed to work through difficult negotiations and questions. The point here is that good relationships grease the wheels of good government. If we can take the short step from power-based to relationship-based attitudes and strategies in our governmental and political institutions, we can enjoy dramatic improvements in our political, governmental, economic, and social institutions and in our daily lives. Good government is conducted by good relationships. Unhealthy relationships tend toward gridlock and irresponsibility. We know better. We can do better. It's a short step. Next time, I'll talk about the fifth idea of political relationism, what we as citizens can and must do. This is Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Thank you for listening. Till next time.